Okay, so our scripture reading is from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Jesus calms the storm. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the boats, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Be quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why were you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Thank you, Louise. Right, before I start, I just want to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today. I just pray, Lord, that the words I speak now will be really anointed by you and your Holy Spirit. And they'll really speak into our hearts from you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, many of you know, or might not know, that we've got a son, Sarah's younger brother, Mark, who for several years actually pursued a professional career as a musician around the globe, and he was an acoustic guitarist. And um, one of his trips to Europe, um, one evening he found himself in a pub in London, and he was just checked into this informal gig. And um, he found himself a table, and he sat down and began chatting to the guy beside him. And as a typical Kiwi, he began chatting in usual Kiwi fashion to this young man, this man who was beside him, and he introduced himself and uh, as a Kiwi. And, and the guy he was sitting next to, he said, oh, I was in New Zealand recently. So Mark says, oh, what were you doing there? Were you on holiday or were you working? And the, uh, this guy said, oh, I was just doing a few gigs. And Mark said, oh, what, what sort of gigs? What, you know, what were you, whereabouts? And this guy replied, oh, I was just um, actually playing with Cliff Richard in the shadows. Now, suddenly, this casual, friendly Kiwi realised he was sitting next to none other than one of the all-time great guitarists, Hank Hank Marvin, who's actually the lead guitarist for The Shadows, arguably the best rock and roll act before The Beatles. Now, for some of you younger guys, that might be lost on you, but this was big, actually, really big for the world of music. And suddenly Mark realised he was in the company of someone extraordinary as a musician. So Mark sort of lost this casual, relaxed air about him and was struck with reverent awe for the man sitting next to him. He took a big gulp. This was no ordinary human. This was no mere mortal. (laughs) Now, in this passage that we just read from Mark's Gospel, there's actually a similar thread running through it. This was an ordinary, regular evening crossing 
on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples in the company of a tired, exhausted Jesus. He'd been speaking to large crowds all day, but through the unexpected events which occurred, like our Mark, the disciples suddenly realised that in their humble boat, they too were in the company of someone truly extraordinary. So by the end of the story, they had too had been shaken and actually terrified with reverence and awe as they realise they are actually in the company of no less than the living God. So let's see how Mark delivers this message. In the opening verses in 35 and 36, they're actually really rich with detail. Jesus and his disciples have set out on this boat. They go to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, leaving behind the crowd. Mark tells us that Jesus doesn't go back to the shore. He stays on the boat. Um, he, goes just, he says he goes just as he was. There were other little boats around their boat with him. He was lying asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion. And these little details are actually really significant for a couple of reasons. Firstly, these are the details of a real historical event. There's always sceptics who like to claim that the biblical writings are either fictional or they're myths and legends. And yet, this is actually not the way that fiction or myths and legends are written. Such detailed accounts are actually the accounts of real eyewitness um, people. They are the details observed by men and women who've actually seen what's been going on. And so we see how this detail establishes the setting of the story, the boat setting out across the lake, and this sets us up for the events that are about to unfold. And so we can believe the truth of the extraordinary events that are actually about to unfold as Jesus miraculously calms the storm that's about to happen. Because you see, you can't really believe half the story and not the other half. So you've also got to engage with the miraculous part of the story that happens. But the second reason why these details, I think, are really significant is that, once again, Mark's reminding us about the humanity of Jesus, his incarnation, that mystery of the transcendent God who comes to earth in the body of Jesus, in a physical body. Mark is emphasising to his readers that this is the teacher who's exhausted, he's in a physical body, He's in a deep sleep after a long, hard day in front of the crowds. He's now retreating with his friends in a boat, asleep on a cushion. So the pace of the story then gains momentum in verses 37 to 39. Suddenly a furious squall breaks out on the boat, on the, sorry, on the sea, and the waves break out over the boat so that it's nearly swamped. And there's Jesus lying asleep, oblivious to the storm. And the disciples are absolutely fearful. They're within inches of drowning and they're bailing furiously. And so they impatiently awake him. Teacher, 
don't you care if we drown? So Jesus rises to his feet with a few words and rebukes the storm, quiet, be still. Miraculously, within seconds, the wind drops, the storm abates, and the sea is completely calm, like a mill pond. Now, I think you can understand this drama and its resolution with four C's. There's chaos, it's followed by calm, there's a bit of comedy in there, and the fourth C are the clues that I think Mark's really pointing us to. So firstly, there's chaos. Mark personifies the squall as furious. Now, because of the nature of its geography, apparently the Sea of Galilee is notorious for sudden storms that boil up unexpectedly. Now, we need to enter the, the world view of these first century fishermen. The Jews actually weren't a seafaring people. And the sea, right throughout their history, has been associated with, through the books of Daniel, through the Psalms, as a place of chaos, of fierce monsters, a place of death where God's good creation and life is destroyed. Mark says the storm came up, and for me this has connotations of something that's kind of created out of the depths of the water that's powerful and malevolent, and it's ready to crush and destroy whatever's on the surface of the sea. And so these disciples are absolutely crippled with fear for their lives. They know that they're going to drown. And they're desperate. And there's Jesus asleep in the middle of their ordeal. So you can understand why they're they're pretty petulant in their appeal to him. Don't you care if we drown? Now, I don't know about you, but I think I can identify with them. When the storms of life rage against us, when we actually think we're bailing furiously within inches of our life, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, don't we really sometimes think Jesus has gone to sleep on us? Don't we think he's absented himself from our problems, from the problems of the world, from the problems of our country, from the problems of the church? Notice the elevated tone and the angst in our prayer life. At such times, God, do you hear us? Are you really awake? Are you really on board with us? Just when we need you. We also want to get down and shake God awake and prevail upon him to do something and to do it fast and to do it our way. So, in response, in verse 39, Jesus wakes up and he actually rebukes in two ways. He rebukes the storm and he rebukes the disciples. So following the chaos, there's the second C, there's calm. Within a very few simple words, Jesus rebukes the waves and the wind, and the calm. The storm is immediately calm. He says, quiet, be calm. It's almost like an adult represent, reprimanding a little child. He says, settle down and shut up. Now, the Greek origin of these imperatives implies that before Jesus even spoke, the storm 
was actually abated by the authority of his will itself. He actually hardly needed to speak. The calm preceded his spoken command. These words signal the supreme authority of Christ as God, ruling the power of the sea with his mighty power. There's instant calm. Now, I don't know if, if you've ever been in the midst of a storm or out on the sea in, in the wind and the waves, but if the wind suddenly dies down, it actually takes quite a while for the waves to settle and for things to actually calm down again. But according to Mark, it actually happened instantaneously. It was miraculous. It was completely calm. God's sovereign power had been unleashed before the eyes of these disciples. So here we see Jesus in the perfect harmony between his, his physical incarnation, he's a, he's a, on one minute he's asleep on the boat, tired and exhausted, and within seconds he's now, within a few simple words, demonstrated his power as the sovereign God. In this boat we have Jesus who has experienced our physical condition, bodily exhausted to the point of sleep, but at the same time he's divinely omnipotent. Instantly, the mere expression of his will able to bring the forces of nature to a standstill. So he's rebuked the storm, now he goes to rebuke his disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, this is a rhetorical question. You can tell I'm an English teacher. These questions actually aren't designed to receive an answer. A rhetorical question is actually designed to make the hearer examine their own hearts and expose the condition of their own, make them think for themselves. And I think the operative word in these questions is still. Why are you still have no faith? So these disciples are Jesus' close friends and they've been with Jesus for months. They've lived alongside him, they've watched him, they've walked and worked along beside him. They've sat at his feet as he's healed the sick, he's cast out demons, he's performed miracles, he's taught huge crowds about the coming kingdom. Now, nourished by these experiences, do you think they should not have responded to his sleeping presence with at least a little bit of trusting faith and thought, look, we're safe. He's present. He's going to look after us. This is just like him. But where was this, their faith in the friend that they surely knew so well and trusted? Why instead was their courage so nakedly and rudely shaken apart? But you know, I don't know about you, but this is often the experience in our own lives. We like to think, firstly, that we're not going to be lashed by the storms of life, but we all know we have been, we are, and we're actually going to continue to be as long as we live in this broken world. How easy it is for us, like the disciples, to default to panic, to be appalled as we see our faith melt away in the face of fear. But the most inspiring Christians I know 
are those who haven't spent are those who have spent years being nourished by God in His Word and prayer. They're actually not typically the ones who shout about their faith from the mountaintops. The ones who are always parading about the, the latest speaker they've heard or the latest book they've read. They're actually the ones that you only need to look at their face and you see a quiet joy radiating from their eyes and from their face. They're often the quiet ones, actually. And when the storms hit their lives, they've actually got this deep reservoir of faith that buoys them up. And it's a faith that's been nurtured over time by a deep, enduring companionship with Jesus. So firstly there's the chaos, then there's the calm. But I think there's also an element of comedy here. Only minutes before, the disciples have been frantic and fearful for their lives. They were sure they were going to drown. In desperation, they'd woken Jesus, appealing for him to intervene and save them, really frustrated that he seemed to be oblivious to their predicament. Now, he's saved them, he's delivered them, miraculously calmed the storm before their eyes. But Mark doesn't actually say that they were relieved or joyful. They hadn't even thanked him. They were actually newly terrified. Now, the Greek word for the fear they felt during the storm, when they thought they were going to drown, is actually means to be cowardly or faint-hearted. But the new terror they feel now, when they've realised who Jesus is, means to panic or flee or withdraw. It's actually a much more potent and virulent fear. So why would men who have been so miraculously delivered from death be terrified now rather than rejoicing? And so the, the reason to this lies in our fourth C, the clue. The clue in this narrative in Mark's gospel is pointing towards. So just when our son Mark realised he had been chatting to one of the world's famous guitarists, he was full of awe and almost dumbfounded. He was actually pretty much lost for words, he told me last night. So the clue we discover about these disciples, new terror, is that Jesus' actions have again opened their eyes to just who they were with in the boat. You see, right from their calling to be disciples, Jesus had been showing them that in him, God was breaking through and was doing something brand new. The disciples had watched his quiet, yet compelling and loving authority at work among the sick, the demonised, the broken, the lonely. He was challenging the religious authorities. And it was like a curtain slowly drawing back to reveal a fresh stage setting. Jesus had been providing undeniable evidence that his authority was powerfully touching every corner of Israel's life. So here for the disciples, right before their eyes, 
is further evidence of this progressive revelation of, of God's kingdom being revealed to them. No less than the living God is with them in their boat. The very God who had brought the heavens and earth into existence by his word. In the person of Jesus, God has become the king launching the restoration of Israel and ushering in the new creation. This is God's kingdom breaking through. This is the source of their terror. Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. So this passage in Mark, this encounter is indeed signposting to God's redemptive plan for Israel through Jesus. And for the disciples and for us, the echoes of Israel's history speak into the scene so powerfully. It is a progression. In Jesus, in Genesis 1, God speaks the universe into existence. He brings order and beauty out of chaos and darkness. In Exodus, the Israelites are delivered from the clutches of the Egyptian army as God parts the Red Sea and continues his redemptive plan for the nation of Israel. Noah and his family are saved from the deluge of the flood and restored onto dry land to establish a new beginning for Israel. As Tom Wright explains, what we're witnessing in this event in in Mark's Gospel is the same power of God now being unleashed in Jesus and acting through him. This is actually a much bigger rest story than a rescue mission on the Sea of Galilee. So when Jesus challenges disciples about their lack of faith, he's actually exhorting them to see through to something much bigger. It's actually all about having the eyes of faith to see God at work through Jesus and ushering in the kingdom of God. When he asks, why are you so afraid? Do you not yet have faith? These questions are actually foreshadowing the very short time ahead when the disciples again will see Jesus actually not asleep on a cushion in a boat but crucified on a cross at Calvary. It's in Jesus' darkest hour at Gethsemane and at Calvary that's when they're going to need real faith in who he is. It's in fact in the Garden of Gethsemane that the tables are actually turned. When Jesus needs them most, they in fact fall asleep on him. Jesus had saved the disciples from a violent storm on the lake. But as Tim Keller points out, on the cross, Jesus was thrown into the ultimate storm, the waves of sin and death. You know, this is actually the only storm that can ultimately sink us. The debt of sin that we owe, that eternally separates us from God. That's the storm that Jesus went into and paid the price for us. He turned his bow into the ultimate storm of sin and death in our place. 
And as we come to fully own and appropriate that for our own lives, we will know without a doubt that he cares more than we could ever imagine. There's actually no storm in our lives that's thrown at us that's greater than anything Jesus has known. The power of evil was broken on the cross and in the empty tomb. There's no storm we can weather without a caring and loving God beside us in our boat. Our call is to press into and learn how to love love and know God more deeply to ensure we have that real faith that can sustain us when the storms break over our bows. You know, as I was preparing this message, I believed God wanted us to understand two things. Firstly, the storms and tempests are part of this life. While they're unpredictable and unpleasant, Jesus is always in the boat with us. He loves us through that storm, often in ways we will never fathom. But secondly, it's in pressing into God through the storms of life that we so often find hidden treasure, our deepest, richest, most unexpected revelation of God. You know, two years ago, John and I were struggling with one of the biggest um, struggles in our life, actually. Our, Our daughter was was desperately ill and we were carrying this this huge burden we didn't even know if she was going to survive and we sat down one Sunday night and we prayed and we were so burdened we thought our boat was going to sink and we pressed into God so mightily that we felt this huge um, weight being lifted off our shoulder as God met us in our lounge and showed us how Incredibly, he loved us and how he could take this burden off us. It was like he had shown us this treasure that we would never have found if we hadn't been in that situation. And it was the most profound experience I've had for a long, long time. And I, I know that I wouldn't have had that experience of God if I hadn't been in that storm on that night. And it sat with me ever since. And I'm, I'm grateful, however hard it was at that time, that I had to go through that storm and find that nugget of treasure that God showed me that he was with us, that he took the tiller of our boat that night and showed us something of himself that we had never found before. So let's take a few minutes now and prayerfully sit before God. If you're encountering a storm in your life... Maybe you need to ask God to refocus your faith on his love. Ask him for a nugget, for some hidden treasure, a fresh encounter with himself in your boat. Just wait and listen. Ask him to bring stillness and calm to your spirit, to discover something of him you know that you've actually never known before. Or perhaps you know of someone else battling a tempest. Take a few minutes to uphold and pray for them. Pray they will experience a unique and fresh encounter with the living God as they weather whatever storm is lashing their lives.